0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Let's take a big step back just for a moment. And let's survey the plans for the house that Jesus is building. We need to roll the plans out across the table um, that contain the details of the scale and the shape and the structure, of the kind of place that Jesus has in mind, the sort of property in which Jesus gets his hands on, and in terms of development, a place that he knows is fit for Jesus to live in. Every one of the 7.8 billion souls on earth will either spend eternity in heaven or hell. That's a very sobering reality. That's why every human being alive today needs to hear the good news of the gospel. The good news being that simple but powerful message of salvation through Jesus Christ. The one who came to earth and died for sin by means of his sacrificial death at the cross. That's the news that Peter brought to the crowds on the day of Pentecost. That's what precedes the verses that we've just read in Acts chapter 2 when a crowd of 3,000 people turned from their sin and trusted in Christ on a never-to-be-repeated day in history. The Holy Spirit fell, the disciples spoke, and the New Testament church was born. And I want us to see together tonight that the church and the gospel always connect. For if we miss this, We miss the purpose of the church, and we miss where Christians fit in to the church. The church really matters because it really matters to Jesus, and Jesus chose the church to do, well, what P1 children do, a show and tell to the world, as a people who declare and display God's love to the world. The church is to be the show and tell of Jesus to the world. Writer Paul Tripp writes to all of us as Christians tonight when he says this. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be part of it. And so here's my question for all of us, whether at home or in church here tonight. Here's my question. Are you married to the church or are you simply dating the church? Do you just check in with her when you need to? Or are you passionately committed to her? Are you in love with the church of Jesus Christ? In my time among you here, I have seen some of you fall in love with Christ and his church. It has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to see, a joy for any minister of the gospel to see. And praise God, we have seen that repeated several times in recent weeks even, in recent months, where people have come to faith and begun to follow Jesus many times over. I rejoice in that. But also, I have seen many in La and Union Road grow cold in their love for Jesus and in turn grow cold in their love for the church. The two are always connected. You see, in New Testament terms, you can't love Jesus and not love his church. That's impossible. A good test of where we're at in our spiritual lives with God is how we act and react towards the church. And over these next few weeks at this critical juncture in the life of our congregation, my prayer is that we would come to see how Jesus builds his church as we get a clear view from his plans what his church is meant to be like. John Stott said very powerfully, if the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously. How dare we push to the edge of our lives what God has placed at the center? And so let's see how Jesus goes about building his church in Acts chapter 2. First of all, on the apostles' teaching. That's the foundation on the apostles' teaching. It's there in verse 42, really clear for us all to see. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who are they? Well, I've already told you it's the 3,000 who became Christians on that day of Pentecost. Pentecost had not satisfied their hunger for God. It had merely whetted their appetite. They were hungry for more. And that is the first sign of any true Christian. You know, we have fiddled about in Northern Ireland for way too long on this subject. We have held missions, and we push people for decisions for Christ as if that was the end goal. The end has certainly been getting people over the line. Oh, they prayed the prayer. Great. They say they're saved. Great. But we've often just left it at that, as if it's the end. The apostles would be literally turning in their graves if they thought that. That is not what the gospel is all about. That is not the end goal of the church. That is the beginning of the work of the church. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? He gathers his followers together and says, go and make disciples and tell them to obey all that I have commanded you. So if you think you're okay now just because you're over the line, let me tell you, you have only just begun. It's whether you're beginning to obey all that Jesus has commanded us as the mark of a true Christian. Our role as a church, our role as Christians, is not simply to preach for conversion, although that's important, but to provide teaching for a lifetime of cross-carrying commitment, which is way harder... Folks, I could turn it on. I could be turn on the emotional taps every Sunday in both our congregations, and we would see people making commitments. But that is not what I'm called to do. I am called, in my responsibility, to help teach and create a lifetime of cross-carrying, committed Christians in our two congregations. Those who come to faith in Jesus want more of Jesus. Tell us more. This group of 3,000 were calling out, tell us more. We want to know more about Jesus. And at this stage in church history, there were no Bible study notes. There were no tracts. In fact, there wasn't even the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They only had the Old Testament. So all that they were doing was simply unpacking what was in the Old Testament and relaying it to them and how it pointed to Jesus. We've seen that in recent weeks, haven't we? When we went to the road to a mess, Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Do you remember what happened there? The two on the road to a and they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he told us about the Scriptures and how it all pointed to Jesus. The early church was a learning church. Where we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted themselves, it highlights an ongoing dedication to going deeper in God through His Word. The meaning behind that word, devoted themselves, is an unshakable, in fact, it's almost a stubborn commitment they weren't going to shift until they'd learned more about Jesus. That's what the word means. And today we have exactly the same opportunities to build our faith in what the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles have written down for us in the Bible. You see, a learning church reflects a spirit-filled church. And in spiritual terms, thirsty Christians who go looking for refreshment in God's Word will find it. Spirit-filled believers, as these people were, hang on every word of the Bible. And I use this word advisedly. Pentecostal believers, and I believe I'm a Pentecostal believer, a Pentecostal believer wants preaching. You can't have a Pentecostal believer and they don't want preaching. That doesn't add up. Those who are Spirit-filled want to be filled with Scripture. Spiritual churches are learning churches, hungry for God's Word, Fresh glimpses of God's glory. That's the foundation on which we build facts, not feelings. Scripture truth, not spine-tingling experiences. That's the first thing tonight. Secondly, we ask, how did the early Christians relate to each other? Well, it was alongside one another <clears throat> as living stones. David has talked about this even with the younger people tonight. We read in First Peter that we're living stones built together. But how is this seen in this chapter? Chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Pretty clear in those verses, the most common word is the word together. We read all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 46, they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together their glad, sincere hearts. The early church was a loving church. And it's interesting that Luke calls the early church not just fellowship, but the fellowship in the original Greek, the fellowship. And the togetherness can't be missed. The word together is used at least three times in our translations here. So what does that mean for us? Well, the church, which sometimes looks more like a jar of marbles, doesn't it? You know what happens if you've got a big jar of marbles? You tilt the jar of marbles, and what happens when you tilt the jar of marbles? They all bash off each other. And no doubt bits of them chip off each other as well. They're fragile in that sense. If you move a glass jar of marbles about, they all bash off each other and they chip and they're not so good. Sadly, sometimes that's what church is like, isn't it? You know, you fill the jar with different people. Here are all the different marbles and then you turn it one way and they all bash off each other and things get chipped and people get hurt and people fall out and all of that. But no, that's not how it's to be. Rather, would it be like a jar of grapes. Red grapes green grapes. And we pile it all in together. And you know what happens when you mix red and green grapes all together? They bleed into one another. The red goes into the green and the green goes into the red. And by the end of it, actually you don't know, was that a red grape or a green grape? If you leave it long enough, we're to bleed into one another. Learning together. Sharing together. Caring together. Not bashing off each other. It soft skin, soft hearts, bleeding into one another, as it were. Remember for a moment, these 3,000 new believers who had come to faith in Jesus on the day of Pentecost did not all live in Jerusalem. Remember, they'd come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. as a festival, a Jewish festival. So they'd come from all over the known world, but they had to stay on if they wanted to be taught the Scriptures and wanted to learn more about this new Christian faith. They had to stay together. Where were these 3,000 people going to stay? Whenever their accommodation ran out and their hotel, their time was to move out, you know, check out or whatever. Well, it meant that the other Christians in Jerusalem had to open their homes and share their tables and open their larders and share their food. Stay on if you want to know more. Stay in our homes. You need to go and learn more. so You need to stay with us and share with us. And that's what it's meant to be like for any group of local believers. Open doors, open homes, open hearts. People from all sorts of backgrounds, crossing language barriers, cultural differences, were blessed as they shared what they had. They very quickly understood that just as Jesus had given up everything for them, so they were required to read the stores of their lives and for the sake of others. I think a very good indication of where we're at in our Christian lives is how we choose to use our money and how we choose to use our homes. Closed wallets and closed doors reflect the selfishness and independence that was unknown in the early church. Here's our chance to show that we're one in Christ. I'm excited. I mightn't get to see this next stage of life in Union Road and Comfort, but the next stage to move on to whenever things begin to open up and people are allowed to mix in each other's homes again is that let's throw our doors open. Let's make ourselves available to one another. I want you to look out for side-by-side Saturdays that we're going to reintroduce in the next few weeks that hopefully people can mix again in gardens and spend time with each other. Those side-by-side Sundays that we did at the start of 2020 were so well received by those who got involved in them. But incidentally, there were those who were resistant to that because I heard the comment made, you wouldn't know who you'd get, which defeats the whole purpose of what it means to be part of the fellowship of God's people in Union Road and the Comfort. But that's the whole point. True fellowships rest not on the person, but the person in whom they trust, Jesus Christ. That's what unites us, whether we're young or old, in the sports or music or mechanics, united by Christ. That's the thing that joins us together, the cornerstone. Why not even the next few weeks do that off your own bat? Invite folks round to your garden and sit out. Maybe some of the older folks you haven't been out for a while and, you know, why not sit and just come and sit and chat. Don't invite the obvious. Take the risk. Think of someone who would benefit from that time together. I guarantee it'll bless your heart as much as theirs. See, when we read in verse 46 that they broke bread together, of course it refers to communion, the Lord's Supper, but actually because it mentions it twice in these words, I suggest that it actually means more than just that. It means they actually shared means together. What united them more than anything else was Christ. That's what true fellowship is. And folks, we live in a world where the idea of community has all but broken down. And unwittingly, we encourage it by the way all of us live our lives, don't we? All of us have been at fault in this past year, even more so at times, and have drawn that drawbridge up and cut ourselves off all the more from each other. Of course, we see glimpses of goodness and evidence of grace, but generally speaking, our world and our community is really only in it for what they or we can get out of it. Increasingly, children all have their own bedrooms. At the right time and after certain financial contortions, young people all drive their own cars. We nearly all have our own phones, our personal means of communication. And because we can do so much more online these days, we don't even need to talk to anyone face to face. We can just do it all virtually. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to show the world that community actually matters, that Christ died to save a community, the church, the fellowship. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to talk and share and laugh and cry and meet and eat together. That famous Greek word here is koinonia, that many of you will know means that togetherness, that joined together fellowship, all resting on Jesus Christ. But the English word fellowship comes down to us, and I think I've maybe used this before, but it is from the old Norse word, felixcipi. Remember the Norse were the Vikings? So much of the English language has come from the Vikings. Felixcipi, there it is on the screen. Sounds like fellowship. That's where we get our word fellowship from. But what does the word fellowship mean? Well, in the Old Norse, the bit means a collection of beasts that were brought together. In other words, a bit like a piece of property that was bought at the market. But the second half of the word, means paid for by a particular asking price. Think about what Christ has done for us. A collection of rare beasts (laughs) paid for at an asking price. That's you and that's me. We are the property of Jesus Christ, paid for by the blood that was shed at the cross that brings us together as one. We're united because the price of our ransom was paid by another. Christ's blood, his sacrifice is our unity that brings us into community. In sharing what we have, we share with those who have the same hope, the same Savior, the same Lord. So, so far tonight, we've heard these new believers related to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning church, building on those foundations. And then they were like a loving church with these living stones being pulled together, building each other up. But notice with me how they lived. Thirdly, to the praise of God. To the praise of God. That's our third thing tonight. To the praise of God. The roof, the top, the pinnacle in which their lives depended. And I love the image of a roof, because what does a roof do? The roof has two purposes, really, doesn't it? The roof protects. The roof covers us from anything that would do us harm. That is what our God does. But at the same time, that's the point at which everything in the house kind of meets, doesn't it? That's the pinnacle, as we talk about. The top part of the house. Everything draws together at the top of the roof. This speaks about a worshipping church. Look at verse 43. They were filled with awe as they listened and learnt about Jesus, astounded regarding the kind of God they had come to know. You see, this is so different, so we don't get this so well today. You see, so many of these people had worshipped the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. And those gods of the Romans and the Greeks were so hard to like. You know, they were worshipped out of fear that if you didn't pay your dues to Caesar or didn't sprinkle a wee bit of incense on the altar to the God Mars, there'd be repercussions. It was almost like paying them off in order to have a good life. It was an atmosphere of fear all the time, keeping the gods happy so that you could go uninterrupted, so that your crops would go and your family would stay healthy. You were always offering a wee bit of incense on the altar just by way of protection. It was like a lucky charm. But the Jesus they had just been told about was not like that. He died so that men and women might be safe. He was the one who gave his life as a sacrifice. He wasn't looking to his followers to make one. He had already given himself as one. That's what led these Christians in worship. The relief in their lives was uncontainable. And we've become so accustomed to the gospel that it ends up meaning so little to us. And Jesus becomes just another segment in our already busy little lives. We add them to the shelf alongside the other gods of our finances and future success and health and happiness and relationships and recognition. But these people were so excited about their saviour. Look at verse 46. They met together every day in their lunch hour to talk about him. They kept gathering. They came to the temple courts, the only place big enough to hold them. They had their meetings there, and they were probably a little bit more formal. There was teaching and there was prayer but they couldn't get enough. And look at verse 46. Then they met in each other's homes in an attempt to make the big church small and workable. There were these big, larger gatherings, and then there were these follow-up meetings in these homes across the city. And what happened at these meetings? Well, we read there was prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread. People wanted to share Christ. They were so excited about Jesus. And when they met and split the loaf and poured out the drinks and had their meal together and they took time to chatter about Jesus over dinner, they were teasing out, well, what did they mean when the apostles said this? And one of the apostles would go on to explain it to them. And it all led to the point, it all led to the top, the roof. Verse 47, they praised God. Because, you see, there's no point in having all this Bible teaching. There's no point in getting to know the Scriptures if it doesn't lead to a praise of God. Otherwise, it's just all head knowledge and never touches our hearts. What we know of Jesus must lead us to praise Jesus. Imagine you're at a great event in the theater or at a sports venue. But imagine when the lights go up, you realize you're the only spectator, the only one in the audience. The play that you've seen was magnificent. The match that you've watched was fantastic. Both of you gripped by the drama but you're on your own. And you're less likely at the end to stand up and clap or stamp your feet because you're there alone. You'd feel very self-conscious, wouldn't you? But whenever you add the crowd, whenever you bubble over with excitement, whenever you say with wasn't that amazing what Jesus has done? Can you believe that we're saved from our sin? Can you believe he's paved the way to heaven? Do you realize that we don't have anything else to add? We just need to believe. As they talked about this, their hearts burst, and they shared it with one another. They were so excited. And that's what happens as the church gathers, as we talk and share and sing and pray and praise. We do it together, one with the other all from different places where we've been all week, often maybe the only Christian in an environment we've walked into all week. We need to be together. And in corporate worship, we see joyful excitement and holy reverence, and there has to be both, doesn't there? Our worship of God together, it must be dignified, yes, but our worship of God must never be dull. Oh, save us from dullness in worship. We come to give joyful celebration to God. We come to raise the roof, to hide under the salvation shelter that he gives, but we always are looking to praise him first. How we look and the expressions we have Sunday by Sunday might reflect our hearts. And that's not to say we're to slap a false grin on our faces when we're fighting the fire in our own lives, but we are to allow ourselves to be uplifted by even the words that others are singing and the joy that they might be bringing to us. When days are long for us, be blessed by the words that we sing and read and pray for one another here week by week. For the prayers that are said are not just said by the minister for the minister, but it's by the minister with God's people, for God's people, to the glory of God. And you see, that's the challenge for when any of us step away or decide to skip a service. We miss out on the marvels of God. Being sung, say it. Look at verse 43. God was among them, and they were filled with joy. I can't explain it, but there's something happens when God's people come together that is special. But finally, we're nearly done. God's people in the church are to be attractive to the world. We're to bring the wow factor into the world. Look at verse 47. It's an incredible verse. As they praised God in their lives, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Yes, as we'll find out in the rest of the book of Acts, there are many times when the church is persecuted and will go through difficult times and will be subject to ridicule and derision. But you know, when church is done right, And God's people's hearts are right. We will enjoy the favor of those who look on. We will bring a wow factor to macrofelt and Desert Martin and Money More. For the early church was an attractive fellowship. Unbelievers attention was drawn to this community of believers. You see, the church was never meant to be a closed secret community. The fellowship enjoyed the community and unity shared by the Christians overflowed naturally into evangelism. When Christians love each other the way Christ loved them, there will always be a natural spillover into how they relate to those who don't know Jesus. Let me say very clear tonight, if you are at loggerheads with someone else in church, the witness to this church is already damaged. And you need to sort that out. And I need to sort that out. If there's anything between you and anyone else in this building tonight, you need to sort that out. Because that will damage the witness to our world. In a world when community breaks down, where the core of society continues to crumble, where people struggle to find acceptance and look for recognition in their social standing, their sexuality, their stunning looks, our big headline success stories, where families split and there's breakup and turmoil, so many people are yearning for a place of acceptance where they can be themselves and be loved for who they are and all that we've been through. How I long that we become that place. But the other important factor here is what happened when outsiders came in? Well, whenever they came to faith in Christ, they were immediately added to the church. Verse 47 is so crucial. We've got to get verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you are a Christian you must belong to a church fellowship. And if you are not a Christian, you do not belong to the church. There is no place for either the nominal Christian or the isolated Christian. The New Testament doesn't even comprehend that. It's not there. You cannot be an isolated Christian who chooses not to come to church. Neither can you be a nominal Christian who claims to belong to the church. Either you belong to Christ and his people or you don't. How do I know? Verse 47. The Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What was their number? The church. Their number was the church. Who was added to the church? Those who were saved. It's all there. If you're a saved Christian, you're bound to the church. You're either in or out, with him or with us, or not. But the beautifully encouraging factor in all of this was as the Christians lived in such an attractive and Jesus-pleasing way, Jesus added to his church. He does the adding. Not me, not you. He does the adding. And when we live that life that is unified and where God is magnified in the church, the church will be multiplied. And that makes it a beautiful place to be. This early church praised Jesus, lived for Jesus, and that pleased Jesus, and it became a growing church. And those who were being saved did not just come sporadically. Right here, it happened daily. Why? How? Because these early, spirit-filled Christians took Christ to work. They took Christ into their homes They took Christ to the gymnasium, to the theaters, to their schools and their universities. They joined together for encouragement and prayer and fellowship during the week. And the rest of the time, they carried Christ to wherever they were, to whoever they met. God kept the church growing as they kept going. Josh Harris, in his brilliant little book, Stop Dating the Church, describes his own experience like this. It's quite a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, A friend sent me a set of sermons called Passion for the Church by a pastor from Maryland. The title alone was baffling. Passion for the Church? The words passion and church absolutely did not connect in my mind. The series might as well have been called Passion for the Grocery Store. But for some reason, I began to listen. The preacher taught from the book of Ephesians. He showed that the church was actually God's idea, not some plan or program invented by humans. In fact, the church is the only institution God promised to sustain forever. This is where the passion came in. To be part of the universal church isn't enough, the preacher said. Every Christian is called to be passionately committed to a specific local church. Why? Because the local church is the key to spiritual health and growth for a Christian. And because of the visible body of Christ in the world, the local church is central to God's plan for every generation. For the first time, I realized that a wholehearted relationship with a local church is God's loving plan for me and for every other follower of Christ. It is not just what my parents want for me. It is not just what some pastor thinks. And it is not optional. The church is the house that Jesus is building. With the foundations on the apostles' teaching, the walls being built up of living stones, leading to that great roof of praise, the God of protection, to whom all our lives collectively point, which make the world pass by and look on at the gathered church and say, Wow, what a beautiful place to be. What a wonderfully gifted architect and builder that can turn these people into something special. The people Jesus calls His church. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that the church is your idea. And we bless you for your plans to build it, to shape it, to structure it. And we thank you that your word tells us that the devil will never overcome it. We thank you for the foundations that we can build upon in your word on the apostles and the prophets that all lead us to look at Christ and his glory. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes to see this and make us scripture hungry to know more and more of our Savior. Father, we bless you that we get to live life alongside fellow believers and love one another and bleed into one another with open doors, open hands, open hearts. Father, we thank you that we have been bought with a price, that we have been united in Jesus, that each one of us here, your people here tonight, share that in common with each other. And so, Father, we pray that in Le Comfort and Union Road alike that this would all be raised to a pinnacle of praise that would bring glory to your name, the protection that you've given us in Christ, the salvation that is ours. May this place, may we as your people, be so attractive to our world that they might look on and say, Wow, wow, what a builder. What an architect to get so much out of those people. Father, build your kingdom here. Do it among us. Do it with us. Do it through us. And all to the praise of your glory and grace. Amen.